morning. Uh, the thing uh, about a series like the one that we started last week called Living the Dream, which is based on the life of Joseph, is that the story is mainly captured within a section of the Bible. And in Joseph's case, it starts in chapter 37, and it runs right up to and includes chapter 50, although we're only going to go during this series up to 45. Now, the problem, for want of a better word, uh, with a decision to work your way through someone's story, and particularly someone's Old Testament story, is that you're going to probably find yourself confronted with aspects of the story that seem to be somewhat confusing, disturbing, mysterious, and slightly strange, to say the least. There are often chapters in their story that you kind of wish weren't there, especially if you have to read them in a context like this and then attempt to make some comments based on them. And so the temptation or the tendency is that you avoid them, you skip them, you move on quickly. And yet I can't and we can't get away from those familiar words that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful, which includes the obscure, the unsettling, and the uncomfortable bits. Now, I know that some of you will totally understand why I have started like this, because in preparation for this morning, some of you have read Genesis 38. For others, you're wondering why I've started like this. So let's stand together. Let's read Genesis 38, and I think you'll probably appreciate my introduction and my dilemma. Let's stand. It's page 42 in the Pew Bibles. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira or Hira. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her, made love to her, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur, which I always think is an unfortunate name because you sort of think, what's your name, Ur? Oh, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah, another unfortunate name. It was at Kezib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to avoid providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Sheila grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. And when Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep. And his friend Hera the Adullamite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enem, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Sheila had now grown up, she was not going to be given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute. 
for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and says, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her, slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. And so he asked the men who lived there, where's the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enem? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there say, there hasn't been any shrine prostitutes here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughing stock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. Well, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she's now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law, I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized him and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Sheila, and he, has, and he did not sleep with her again. And when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread, tied it on his wrist, and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was given the name Zera. Now, if you just stay standing for our final hymn, uh, (laughs) just grab a seat, grab a seat. It's it's not going to come as any great surprise to know that when the story of Joseph is being taught in lots of places, this chapter conveniently gets left out. Uh, And that's not just because of the rather unsavory content. It's more to do with the fact that it appears to be a complete tangent. A total digression in the story. I mean, after all, Joseph isn't even mentioned. Look at the very final verse of chapter 37, if you have a Bible. And then look at the very first verse of chapter 39. And what you'll discover there is a seamless link So why chapter 38? Because it comes across as so disconnected, so out of sync. Like, would the story of Joseph lose out in any way if this chapter wasn't there? And would the bigger story of Scripture suffer if Genesis 38 wasn't included? Those are fair questions to ask. But what I hope we'll discover this morning is that this chapter is actually worth the paper it's written on. This chapter does matter, and it is useful on on just so many levels. And it has been retained as a story for a reason. Let me just give you three. There are more than this, but let me give you three reasons why this has been retained. The key character in chapter 38 is Judah. He's the fourth son of Jacob. But of all the brothers, Judah plays the most prominent role in Joseph's story. Far more prominent than even Reuben. 
the oldest brother, who does have a leading role as well. And we met Judah last week in chapter 37. He was the one who suggested, look, rather than killing Joseph, let's sell him. Let's make money out of him. But we're going to continue to meet him in subsequent chapters. But whenever, when it comes to the end of this story, whenever Jacob is blessing his sons in chapter 49, before he dies, Jacob actually says more to Judah than to any other brother apart from Joseph. So Genesis 38 provides us with an insight into a core character who features strongly in the Joseph story. Second reason, and this has been suggested by a number of people, is that the the interlude, if you like, the intermission, the interval in the Joseph story is itself important. Because what it does is it creates this definite distance between the final verse of chapter 37 and the opening verse of chapter 39. The apparent break in that story gives you the sense Joseph's been forgotten. You're taken somewhere else in the narrative. Somewhere very different. And therefore you're left to wonder, well, whatever happened to the dreamer? There's a reason for it being there to to, to create that definite distance. And the third reason why this matters has to do with the remarkable grace of God and the stunning humility of Christ. And that may seem like a rather random comment at this stage, but for those who are familiar with the genealogy of Jesus set out in Matthew 1, you'll know exactly why I've said that. And and we will come back to it a little later. So in light of all those reasons, we're not, or I'm not, going to skip past Genesis 38, although I have to be honest, when I read it earlier in the week, I did consider taking a sickie. <laughs> okay, let's, uh, let's walk our way through the text and attempt to offer some reflection. So again, if you, have a, if you have a Bible, it would be really, really helpful. See, for some reason, and this is interesting in itself, for some reason Judah leaves home. Why? Why? It might have been that he couldn't bear to watch his dad exist in a constant state of grief. Jacob, you'll recall, had said, listen, do you know something? I'm going to mourn the death of Joseph until the day I die. And so every time that Judah would have come home from work, every time Judah came in from the fields after looking after the sheep, he would see his father's tears and he would be reminded of the horrendous thing that he and his brothers did to Joseph. You know, sometimes when we mess up, And especially whenever we see others suffer as a result. Well, rather than confess our sin, repent and seek forgiveness, what we try to do is avoid the consequences. We avoid the consequences of our actions by trying to run away. Or at least we try. And the problem is, or the reality is, that sin has this habit of catching up with you. Because as the saying goes, be sure your sin will find you out. And Judah might have thought, do you know something? See if I could just get away from home. See if I could just leave home. I could just close the door on that sorry saga. But it didn't have that effect. The truth would one day get out, as the rest of the Joseph story tells us. You see, you can run, but you can never hide forever. And so Judah leaves home and he he hooks up with a friend called Hera or Hera, a man from Adullam who appears to be a good friend, but unfortunately he's not a great influence. Because any time that he gets mentioned, trouble is in store for Judah. And according to the writer of Proverbs, the righteous choose their friends 
carefully. I mean, friends are important to all of us. Of course they are. But our friends influence us. Our friends have a significant impact on us. Our friends actually can shape us. And therefore, we do need to be incredibly wise about who we choose to spend time with. Is the influence of our friends positive or negative? Hera wasn't great. And Judah then meets his wife, who is an unnamed Canaanite, which again probably wasn't the best choice. And together they have three sons, Ur, Onan, Shelah. Years pass, and the oldest son, Ur, is now at marrying stage. And so Judah gets a wife for him called Tamar. But then we read these rather chilling words. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, and so the Lord put him to death. First impressions are uh, really important. We often make up our mind about someone based on them. And you can actually read lots about how to create a good first impression. Well, if you were here last week, you'll remember how we made the point that as the Joseph story begins, God appears absent. God isn't mentioned at all in Genesis chapter 37. But here in Genesis 38, this, along with verse 10, is the first reference to God. And therefore, is it not a little shocking to discover that God's initial act in the story involves him putting two people to death? We don't get a great first impression of God. But what this does reveal, and it says it very loudly, and it's a very solemn thought, and yet it's our worldview. It's what we believe, that life and death are ultimately in the hands of God. He gives, he takes away. And an additional factor here is that in both the lives, wickedness featured. The narrator tells us that Ur was wicked, but that what Onan did was wicked. And therefore, God judged. And the Bible makes it really clear that sin and wickedness and evil will be judged by a holy God. And although your first impression of God in the Joseph story may be disturbing... This is who God is. God is the judge of all the earth and he will do right. Even though it doesn't always sit that comfortably with us. Exactly why Ur was described as wicked, we don't know. In some ways it's totally irrelevant. Because the key phrase there is, he was wicked in the Lord's sight. And that's the criteria. We have different criteria for determining wickedness. I know that. But it's God's criteria that matters. And because Ur was wicked in the Lord's sight, God removed him. In Onan's case, we do know what he did. Although I have got to be really careful here with this next bit. See, in this culture at this time, it appears that it was entirely appropriate for the head of a household, Judah in this case, to give a dead man's wife, Tamar, to the next son. 
Onan, so that Ur's name would not die out with him. This was later known, as I understand it, as Leverite marriage from the Latin lever, which means brother-in-law. So Judah asked Onan to fulfill his duty to Tamar because he, she was his brother-in-law or his sister-in-law. But it seems that Onan was happy enough to sleep with Tamar. And according to verse 9, he slept with her on a number of occasions. He liked that part of the arrangement. But what he didn't want to do was get her pregnant. And so he did what he did. And what he did in terms of his intention was very risky. But actually, it proved to be very effective. Now, I'm not, and as I say, you'll be very glad that I'm not going to head off on some tangent regarding Onan spilling his seed. The problem here is that that is not the problem. The problem lies in his rebellious and wrong attitude towards his dad, because his dad commanded him to raise up an offspring for his brother. Onan sinned against Judah. He did it in blatant disobedience. But you could also say that Onan sinned against Tamar because what he did with her is he just played with her. He played with her emotions. He played with her body. And he denied her the chance to have children. But he also sinned against her in that he didn't continue the family line. And what you discover is someone here whose actions were selfish and self-seeking. And they were selfish and self-seeking at the expense of other people. And that was wicked. And so we read in verse 10, the Lord put him to death. You see, Onan knew what was the right thing to do. He knew what he should have done. But for some reason, he said, no, I'm not going to do it. I like part of the deal. And I'm going to enjoy that part of the deal. 